We are going to finish our series today that we're calling When It's All Said and Done. So we've been talking about end times events, you know, and we've covered a bunch of stuff from the second coming of Christ. That's the first one. Jesus is coming back. It's not that every generation, you know, just gets old and and dies and, you know, goes to be with the Lord when they walk by faith. Uh, But there is a generation that's going to see Jesus return to this earth, according to the scriptures. And that's quite an amazing promise. And then we talked about the great tribulation and the rapture. You know, very important moments in these end time events. We talked about when is this going to happen, you know, and we don't know the day or the hour. There can be indications of the season. So, you know, we might be in the season. Seems like every other generation thought they were too. So (laughs) so we have to, you know, we have to figure out what to do while we're waiting for Jesus to return. And that was part four of when it's all said and done. We went through chapter 25 of Matthew. Basically, you know, what do we do in the meantime before Jesus returns? You know, keep building your relationship with God, growing in the Lord. That's adding oil to your lamp so your lamp doesn't go out, you don't burn out. Uh, Go ahead and get some uh, productive work done for the kingdom of God, you know, the parable of the talents, and then go ahead and be nice to people. Treat them right. You know, the sheep and the goats. Let's do that stuff. In the meantime, build your relationship with the Lord through prayer and worship and study and obedience and and growth, spiritual growth, you know, make an impact in this world, make a difference, and then love people. I think that that's pretty good stuff for us to do while we're waiting for Jesus to return. Today, as we finish up this series, we're getting close to Christmas time, you know, we're just a week away. And so what I want to do to finish out this series is look at the prophecies of the first coming of Christ, of Advent, some of them, you know, there's a bunch, so we're only going to get a little a little sampling, and then see how it was handled, and then kind of look at, so how do we handle looking forward to the second coming? So that's how we're going to finish up the series. As we, again, look forward to the second coming of Christ, we can learn lessons from the first coming. What prophecies were fulfilled? How clear was it? Were these prophecies vague or very clear? How did the people respond, you know? It's it's really something. So let's look back. And then, you know, this is, is something that we celebrate here with Christmas. And here at Good Hope Church, we're going to have three live Christmas Eve candlelight services. So if uh, if you like Christmas Eve candlelight services, you're not sure where to go. We've got three of them, 30, 3 o'clock, and 4.30 at our location in Cloquet, 55 Armory Road, Cloquet, Minnesota. So excited about that. But let's take a little sample of some Old Testament prophecies about Jesus' first coming. So I'm going to start in the book of Isaiah. Uh, Isaiah, look at that. I hit the page. Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14 is one that's quoted quite a bit. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and and will call him Emmanuel. Uh, Emmanuel means God with us. So this is a sign to the people that there will be a child that is born, a son, Emmanuel, God with us, born of the virgin. Now, when you look at you know, and you kind of dissect it. Virgin doesn't necessarily, it, it could mean just a young woman. It doesn't necessarily mean everything that that word means to us. Uh, but it can certainly mean that. So that's, of course, how people have taken it. You get Mary, the virgin birth. So there we go. We've got the, the birth of the Christ uh, here foretold as a virgin birth, Emmanuel, God with us, Isaiah seven fourteen. Now let's go to Isaiah chapter 9. We're going to read verses 
1 through 7. So this, you know, just right over here, Isaiah 9. So let's take a peek at this and see what it says. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who are in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will honor Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. So here we see another prophecy from Isaiah of the coming of the of this child that will be born. You know, we see here very clearly coming out of Galilee, you know, Galilee of the Gentiles, a people walking in darkness have seen a great light. And, you know, it just seems pretty clear here that this ruler, wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace, this child will come out of Galilee. And so I was always a little confused when you go to John chapter 7, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John chapter 7, and we look in verses 50 through 52, we have a dispute about that. Nicodemus, who had gone to Jesus earlier and who was one of their number, asked, does our law condemn a man without first hearing him to find out what he's been doing? So, you know, Nicodemus is kind of standing up for Jesus. He had a soft spot for Jesus and people were mad at Jesus. And then verse 52, they replied, are you from Galilee too? Look into it and you will find that a prophet does not come out of Galilee. Well, did they not read Isaiah chapter 9? I mean, these people studied the scriptures all the time, and maybe they got too nitpicky on this, and they're like, no, that's a king. That's not a prophet. Or, I don't know what they were thinking, but, you know, in the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali, but in the future, he will honor Galilee of the nations, the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan of people walking in darkness have seen a great light. So that light very much seems to be this child who is born, wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace, you know. So I don't know. They they didn't see this Galilee peace. But of course, there were other scriptures, you know, about the Messiah coming from Bethlehem. So how can he be from Galilee and Bethlehem? And then you've got the whole out of Egypt, I called my son. So it's like Jesus, the Messiah is supposed to come from Bethlehem and from Galilee, and from Egypt. And so how does this all work? And if you know the Christmas story, you know, Jesus born in Bethlehem, he was, you know, fled to Egypt with, you know, the, the king trying to destroy all the babies so that the Messiah wouldn't, uh, you know, take over from him. And then, you know, raised once it was safe in Galilee. So you have Jesus fulfilling all three of these, the Bethlehem, the Egypt, and the Galilee, all at once in his uh, childhood. So there you go. That's some interesting stuff.
Let's go to Micah. Uh, just, you know, we're just getting a little sample here. We're going to go to Micah chapter 5, verses 1 through 4. And we got some interesting stuff. Micah chapter 5, 1 through 4 says, Marshal your troops now, city of troops, for a siege is laid against us. They will strike Israel's ruler on the cheek with a rod. But you, Bethlehem, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for, for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from old, from ancient times. Here we see the, the prophecy of Bethlehem. Therefore, Israel will be abandoned until the time when she who is in labor bears a son. Israel will be abandoned. They were under the rule of the Romans, and they're like, when the son is born, we're going to be free from the Romans. And the rest of his brothers return to join the Israelites. He will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they will live securely. For then his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth. So the prophecy of the, the coming Messiah from Bethlehem, who's, you know, going to help them get free. We saw a breaking of the yoke in Isaiah. You know, they, they interpreted that as we're going to crush the Romans and it's going to go to the ends of the earth. You know, so they got we got all these prophecies. Now let's go to Jeremiah. Jeremiah, we got a good one here. Jeremiah 23. Jeremiah 23, we're going to read verses 5 and 6. 5 and 6 says this, The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, a king who will reign wisely and do what is just and right in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will live in safety. This is the name by which he will be called, the Lord our righteous Savior. So Jesus, Jesus, our Lord and Savior. We have that in Jeremiah. So we see these prophecies, and of course, there's a whole bunch more. There's all kinds of more prophecies about the coming of, of the Lord, the advent, the first coming of Christ. And, uh, you know, when we look back on it, it makes sense. They're, they're kind of vague, you know, like exactly what does virgin mean? You know, like he's coming out of Galilee, not born in Galilee, also living in Egypt for a while. <laughs> there's, there's, you know, Looking back, we can see how it fits together, but I would think it, it, it would be complicated trying to put it all together to predict the future. They worked very hard at that in ancient times to predict the coming of the Messiah. You know, this was very important to them. They studied it. All kinds of people studied it. That's why the Magi came, you know, when Jesus was born, they they were wanting to find out about this sort of thing too. Like everybody, lots of people were trying to understand how this was going to happen, how it was going to all work. And so they worked at it, but there was confusion in Jesus' day on who Jesus was, how this all worked. And I can understand where that confusion comes from, but because we have these prophecies, and again, in a hindsight, we can kind of put it together, but I would have tremendous difficulty figuring out what's going to happen or maybe even recognizing it in the moment, I can see how that would be a challenge. So the, the people had prophecies that were somewhat clear, but again, they're, they're mixed in with all this other stuff too. So trying to sort it all out, it can be challenging. But then even in that, people didn't see it. They didn't see the Galilee thing, like look into it. Well, how about Isaiah chapter nine? They had Isaiah chapter nine. So anyway, they had trouble figuring it out. Might we have trouble figuring it out too when we're looking forward to the second coming? I think that's possible. But I want to share with you my favorite Old Testament scripture about Christ. And this is Psalm 22. Isaiah was written maybe 700 years before Christ. Psalm 22 
about a thousand years before Christ, you know, written by David and David about a thousand years before Christ. So Psalm 22, I just think is amazing. So I'm going to read Psalm 22. We're going to talk about it. It's basically about the crucifixion of Christ and hints at the resurrection and the victory that comes. So I think Psalm 22 is amazing when you're looking at, at prophecies. So I went the wrong direction here. Psalm 22. Let's just read the whole thing. Take about three minutes and and think of this. Think of the plot line of this psalm. You know, it starts off in pain, in despair, in abandonment and shame. And then there's hope. There's a glimmer of hope first, too. Then there's hope and there's victory. And, you know, it's there's an incredible arc in the story of Psalm 22. So listen to it along those lines. And then we'll lay it on to Holy Week, basically, the, the, the death of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, the hope we have in Christ. So here we go. Psalm 22, verse 1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from my cries of anguish? My God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer. By night, but I find no rest. Yet you are enthroned as the Holy One. You are the one Israel praises. In you, our ancestors put their trust. They trusted you and delivered, and you delivered them. To you, they cried and were saved. In you, they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by everyone, despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusted in the Lord, they said. Let the Lord rescue him. Let the Lord deliver him since he delights in him. Yet you brought me out of the womb. You made me trust in you even at my mother's breast. From birth I was cast on you. From my mother's womb you have been my God. Do not be far from me, for trouble is near, and there is no one to help. Many bulls surround me. Strong bulls of Bashan encircle me. Roaring lions that tear their prey open their mouths wide against me. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is turned to wax. It is melted within me. My mouth is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. Dogs surround me. A pack of villains encircle me. They pierce my hands and my feet. All my bones are on display. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. But you, Lord, do not be far from me. You You are my strength. Come quickly to help me. Deliver me from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dogs. Rescue me from the mouth of the lions. Save me from the horns of the wild oxen. I will declare your name to my people. In the assembly, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, honor him. Revere him, all you descendants of Israel, for he has not despised or scorned the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him, but has listened to his cry for help. From you comes the theme of my praise in the great assembly. Before those who fear you, I will fulfill my vows. The poor will eat and be satisfied. Those who seek the Lord will praise him. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. All the families of the nations will bow down before him. For dominion belongs to the Lord and he rules over the nations. All the rich of the earth will feast and worship. All who go down to the dust will kneel before him, those who cannot keep themselves alive. Posterity will serve him. Future generations will be told about the Lord. 
They will proclaim his righteousness, declaring to a people yet unborn, he has done it. I just, I don't know about you, but a thousand years before Christ, this just gets me because we have, it starts off with my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? If you know that is uh, one of the last words of Christ, you know, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And people are like, what? What's he doing there? You know, has he lost his hope? It doesn't make sense for the Christ to lose his hope. He was referencing Psalm 22, you know, at the cross. He's referencing Psalm 22. And, you know, this whole idea of the the hurt that he went through, you know, verses one and two, I think, obviously the cross and Jesus' prayer, you know, if there's any other way let this cup be taken from me. You know, he's 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 sweating like drops of blood. He's in anguish, praying to be able to avoid the cross. But then he leans in and, you know, not your will, but oh, not my will, but your will be done, Jesus says. So verses one and two, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from my cries of anguish? My God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer by night, but I find no rest. So He's Jesus is in the middle of that part of Psalm 22 when he quotes it. He's in the pain. He's in the the prayer time that is, you know, he asks his father if, you know, take this cup from me. The father's answer is no. That's what we see here. Then, you know, verses three through five kind of hint at uh, the father's plan, you know, trusting the, the ancients trusted in you. So, you know, there's this kind of foreshadowing of the, the victory that comes later in Psalm 22. Then let's jump to verse seven and eight. All who see me mock me, they hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord, they say, let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. Like that happened at the cross. They, they hurled insults at him. You know, hey, trust in the Lord. Let the Lord rescue him. You know, like that happened at the cross, Psalm 22. Then um, verses 9 and 10, I don't know if this is a hint at the virgin birth. Uh, it's at least a hint at God's plan in advance. You know, yet you brought me out of the womb. You made me trust in you even at my mother's breast. From birth, I was cast on you. From my mother's womb, you have been my God. So he's, Jesus is saying that his father had a plan for him from the beginning, you know, from, from his birth. I don't know. Again, I don't know if this is a reference to the virgin birth with Mary and all of that, but it, it hints in that direction. Verse 15, another one of the last words of Christ is, I thirst. Uh, verse 15, Psalm 22, my mouth is dried up like a potsherd. My tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. So, you know, Jesus said, I thirst. Verses 16 through 18 is amazing. Dogs surround me. A pack of villains encircle me. They they pierce my hands and my feet. It's like a thousand years before Christ, they pierce my hands and my feet. All my bones are on display. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my clothing among them and cast lots for my garment. Isn't this, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Is meant to get us to go back and read Psalm 22. And of course, he is in anguish, but it, it isn't the completion. It isn't the full understanding of what's going on. So then after, you know, they cast lots for my clothing, that sort of thing, then there's a turn. There's a, a new feeling in the psalm. It goes from despair to hope to confidence and a feeling of victory. Let's jump to verse 24. For he has not despised or scorned the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him, but has listened to his cry for help. So we go from, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me to, you know, I'm not forsaken. I'm not forsaken. That's that's verse 24. That's the part of its turn 
Then verses 27 and 28 is the welcoming in of the Gentiles. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations will bow down before him, for dominion belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. You know, one of the big mistakes that they made was, you know, in interpreting the things of God were, you know, the first coming was they thought it was just for the Jews. You know, they thought Jesus would be a military leader that would help the Jews, but that's not that's not what we see here. We see that he is going to be for all the people. And then 29 through 31, the finish of the psalm, all the rich of the earth will feast and worship. There will be thanksgiving on earth. All who go down to the dust will kneel before him, those who cannot keep themselves alive. So every knee will bow, you know, at death will face the Lord. Posterity will serve him. That means future generations will be told about the Lord. They will proclaim his righteousness, declaring to a people yet unborn, he has done it. So there will be uh, uh, the story of Jesus told into the future. He has done it. Jesus said on the cross, it is finished. Like, I think Psalm 22 is amazing. A lot of the prophecies are kind of vague and you're not sure where they go. And, you know, if I lived in ancient times and read Psalm 22, I don't know that I'd have been like, oh, Jesus is going to go to the place of the skull, be, be you know, uh, crucified on a cross. I don't know that I would have understood all of that from this. But looking back, it's like, wow, there's like multiple, multiple references to what Jesus did and that it was a victory. This is amazing. I think that we can look at the prophecies of Scripture and we can see the plan of God over the millennia and understand that God has a plan for history and it's shown in the Scriptures. It's, I think, hidden enough where if you don't want to believe it, you don't have to. But wow, is there amazing, amazing prophecies and fulfillments of prophecy and just an incredible uh, show of the plan of God through history. I think it's amazing. So it's a lot easier to fit the pieces together in hindsight than it is to predict the future. When we're looking at the second coming of Christ, we're looking at predicting the future. And I think that can be tricky. We need to be careful. I think as we study, we can learn and we can grow and we can understand. But if you get super attached to a very particular understanding of how end times events will play out, I think there's a danger. One time, several years back at our pastor's prayer and fasting retreat uh, that we have with the Minnesota District of the Assemblies of God, and I, I go to the prayer and fasting retreat as a kind of a kickoff to our October prayer and fasting every year. And uh, we had Jack Hayford a couple times as our guest speaker for the prayer and fasting retreat. If you know who Jack Hayford is, the old song, majesty, worship his majesty. Like he wrote that song, his big pastor down in California. I think he started the Foursquare movement. I don't know all the details. He big, big guy, super smart. Wow, was he an intelligent guy. And he was teaching us at the prayer retreat, a prayer and fasting retreat. And he made a statement. He kind of you know, talked a little while on something that would have been very controversial in the setting about some end times ideas. And he he kept talking for a while. And then I think he noticed that the room with maybe, you know, 500 pastors was sort of quiet, <laughs> you know, and he just kind of looked up and he said, well, you, you may or may not agree with that. But uh, when this is all over, we're all going to have to make some adjustments to our eschatology. 
And then he went back into his thing. And what he was saying was, is, you know, he has an idea and he's studied it through and he's worked really hard to try to get a sense of what the future is going to hold in the prophetic. But he doesn't pretend to have it all figured out. And he's probably going to need to make some adjustments. And we need to get comfortable with that as well. If those who studied the Old Testament to find out about Christ made those major mistakes, like he's going to be a military political leader for the Jews only, if if they thought that, you know, because they see the break in the yoke and that sort of a thing, they're like, yeah, break the yoke of the Romans, you know, not realizing it was the yoke of sin and death, you know, and then thinking it was just for the Jews, because of course, if you're going to kick out the Romans, then that's not for the Romans, <laughs> it's for the Jews, uh, you know, not for the Gentiles, but there's the Jews, they made that mistake, even though you see here, very clearly, you know, to the ends of the earth, you know, all the all the nations, all the families of the earth, you know, it's just over and over uh, we see those. And so if they missed that when they took very seriously trying to understand the Old Testament prophecies for the coming of the Christ, and of course, we take very seriously the Old Testament and New Testament prophecies about the second coming of Christ, may it be that we have some stuff wrong? I think so. Now, I don't know what those things are, or I would say, I think we've got this wrong but I'm pretty sure we've got something wrong. And so we need to be careful in how we walk through this. I think we've got, we must have some misconceptions, misunderstandings. So how do we go forward with incomplete information? Because I believe we have incomplete information. I, when I was a new believer, I studied, I wanted to understand everything about God. I wanted to know everything. And I fought and clawed to be able to learn everything. I mean, not everything about religion. Didn't really care about religion. Like, oh, this guy in the 1500s thought this. Like, I don't care. What's really going on? That's what I wanted to know. And so I dug in and I fought and I clawed and I tried to get an understanding of it. And uh, it got pretty complicated and I learned something. The thing I really learned was at some point, it just boils down to faith. At some point, you know, be that at a simple point or a very complex point, at some point, it boils down to faith and you've got to decide, do you trust Jesus or not? So how do we go forward with incomplete information? We go forward by faith. You know, I think it's good to explore. It's good to seek. Jesus encourages us to seek and knock, you know, to go after the things of God. And while we're exploring, while we're looking to see what's going on, we we don't really know what's happening. And I think to try to make a decision as important as whether or not to give your life to Christ without getting enough information is a scary thing. So you want to get the information that you need, but you're still going to have to make a decision based on faith rather than based on having all of the information. And so much of life is like that. It's not just uh, following Jesus that we take on faith, that we have incomplete information on and we make a decision for. There's lots of things in life that you have incomplete information on and you make a decision. But that's part of how it is with serving Jesus. We have incomplete information and we have a big decision to make, to decide to follow Christ or not. So if you're not ready to make that decision, go explore, go look, go see. The one thing I caution you on is don't judge religion because religion is a very poor substitute for God. Judge God. Seek the Lord. Don't seek various people's ideas about God. I've looked into that stuff. is mostly garbage. But there's lots of great things we can find about God and our connection with God. Go seek the Lord. But the day is going to come when you realize you're not going to have all the information. So it's time to make a decision. Am I going to give my life to Christ or not? 
and it's going to be by faith. I have given my life to Christ by faith. Don't have all the information. I don't know how it all works. I don't have all the questions answered, but I know enough to trust in Jesus. And I encourage you, again, I don't want to move it too fast. If you're in that seeking place, engage it so that you can get to the place where it's time for you to make a decision. But you can tell if it's time for you to make a decision now. You can feel it. Like if you know enough to walk by faith and trust in this Messiah that was prophesied about in the Old Testament, who's prophesied about in the New Testament, who's coming back, who those who go, you know, to death, their knee will bow before. If you have enough information and you can feel it's time to decide, then I want you to make that decision to serve Christ for your life till this whole thing is over. Our closing scripture is going to be John 3:16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. It's believing, it's trusting, it's putting your faith in, it's going with and following Christ. It's giving your life to Christ. It's not just thinking he's real. It's loving the the plan of redemption and walking in the ways of God. It's going with him, trusting in him, believing in him. If you're ready, let's go get it. If you're not, seek it out. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for all of the beautiful things in your word, the prophecies, the histories, the teachings. Lord, thank you. But Father, as you well know, you don't give us every answer, everything in your word. You ask us to walk by faith, to trust in your great plan of redemption, that you sent your son because you loved this broken world and each person who bears your likeness. We all are made in your image. Lord, you loved us so much that you created a way for our sins to be atoned for, and for us to be given new life. Lord, we know that you call us to walk by faith because we don't have all the answers. And so, Lord, for those who are ready to make that decision to follow you and to make a life of being a follower of Jesus, I pray for them right now that they would say yes. Enough wavering back and forth, enough going this way and that. They would say, yes, Lord, I will follow you. Show me your ways, forgive me of my past and my sins, and help me to walk forward with you, representing you in this world, learning your ways, grabbing a hold of your truth to get the victory, no matter what the circumstances are in life. Lord, I pray that you would bless them with that. Give them a great life of walking with you. And Lord, for those who are still seeking, I pray, Lord, that that they would engage the seeking process, that they would look, not at religion, but at you and that they would see and come to make that decision. Father, encourage us. Help us to learn your ways, to walk in them, to trust you, and to walk by faith as we anticipate the future we have with you. So encourage us with this. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.